Good morning again, church. You know, it's, it's nothing like you go through rehearsals, everything works well, and then for some reason when, when y'all come in the room, things break. I don't, I don't know how that works, but uh, anyway, so over the last several months, we've all been adjusting and recalculating to plans that we thought were coming, but then eventually would fail and would break, and things just didn't work out. Maybe it was vacation that you had planned and you were just looking forward to this spot and it didn't work or for many graduations looked different your senior year looks different maybe the job that you're in looks different we've all been recalculating and that's what we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks of what does it look like to recalculate when the plans that we had moving forward fail what does it look like to trust in God when what we thought was moving ended up stopping. And week one, we talked about how we need to trust in the sovereignty of God, that we just need to understand that he is still in control, even when we don't always see what that control may look like. We don't always understand what it would mean. We need to trust that God is sovereign in those moments. And then in week two, we, we, we talked about how sometimes when those plans break down or they fail, what it might be is that God is closing a door, and none of us like to see closed doors, but what we need to remember is that God's no today protects his yes tomorrow, that we need to trust God moving forward, that that thing that you thought was going to be really good for you was actually ended up, what God said was, no, 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 let's not do that because I've got something better coming down the pipe. And then in week three, we talked about the hard one, I think sometimes, is looking at ourselves. And acknowledging that when a plan failed, it could have been because you were a part of the problem. And that's okay, that God takes our failures and our missteps, and he turns them into something beautiful. And then today, in week four, we're going to look at, in order for our plans to succeed, in order for things to work out well, you and I must be committed we have to be fully committed. I don't know if you know this person, but she's been attending our church probably her entire life. Parents, great people. Her name's Carson Dingler. Good, good woman of God. She is at the University of Georgia right now. She is a pole vaulter. She's actually a really good pole vaulter, and I could stand up here and talk forever about all the awards she's won and all these other things, but I don't have that much time. So this week, I was thinking about the sermon. I called Carson. And I said, hey, I want to talk about pole vaulting, but I literally know nothing about pole vaulting. So kind of talk to me about what it would look like if someone went to go pole vault and they weren't all in. They weren't fully committed. So Carson begins to talk to me about this. Now Carson is about five, six, five, seven, and she uses a pole that is 13 feet approximately. It's a little longer than that. I don't remember all the, you know, the height and weight and, you know, all this good stuff. But she starts talking to me about how this five foot seven girl holds a 13-foot pole and runs at full speed in a direction and then plants this pole into the ground in hopes that she will go up and over something. Now, if you need a little bit uh, of comparison, this LED light right here is approximately 13 feet all the way to the top. Now, I'm 6'2". Can you imagine me holding this, running full speed, planting it into the ground, and then somehow trying to get up and over, let alone 
a girl who's 5'7", 5'6", weighs a lot less than me, putting her entire everything into this pole. That, that's, that takes some commitment. Like, you're going to plant this thing in the ground. You had to run with it, first off. Like, that's difficult. It's long. It's crazy. You have to plant this thing in the ground to go up and over another pole. And I said, what does it look like if you didn't fully commit? Like, what, what if you were to run with this pole and just kind of maybe jog or pull up at the end? And she said, yeah, don't do that. It would not be good. I said, well, has that ever happened? She goes, thankfully, it's only happened to me one time. And she said she was, she was running, and she probably just didn't give it her all, and she was working on technique. And she put the pole into the ground, and what happens when you don't go all in is you immediately get shot backwards and get shot backwards pretty violently. There's some pretty epic YouTube videos out there if you want to look at it. But you plant this thing in the ground, and, of course, the pole bends. And on that one, it'll bend a little bit, and it'll just say, you didn't bring it. And you get thrown back onto your back or butt and or head, and you have to start over. And I think sometimes in our plans, if we're not fully committed, that's exactly what's going to happen, is that we're going to get thrown on our backside, and it's going to hurt, and we don't always get another chance to go run full speed again. And so we need to make sure that we are very committed the first time. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 13 this morning. And we're going to be looking at this idea of being committed. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there with me. As you're doing that, I want to give you a little bit of context of this book, uh, of kind of where we are in this story. So the book of First and Second Samuel are the books that help kind of chronologically get us from the time of the judges in Israel to the times of the kings. And so 1 Samuel comes along, or I should say Samuel comes along. He is born, his mother's name is Hannah, and he's born of a very set of unique circumstances. And Samuel, early in life, knew that he was going to be a leader. He was going to be a good man, and he would eventually become a judge of Israel. Now, he would hope that his two sons would come up after him and become judges or maybe even kings one day, but his two sons were terrible people. Uh, you know, the Israelites did not respect them. They didn't accept them, and they were kind of pushed aside. And so Samuel found himself in a place where I've got to find someone to lead these people. And at the same time, the Israelites really wanted to move away from judges and move to a monarchy, meaning they wanted to move to this system where they were run and ruled by a king. And because they wanted to, the reason I should say, the reason they wanted to do this was because all of their neighboring countries and people groups, this is the system that they had in place. And they literally look at Samuel at one point and say, hey, look, we just want to be like everyone else. We, we just, everyone else has kings, and, and, and keep in mind, everyone else at this time economically is doing really well, and the Israelites are kind of struggling, so they look at these other countries and these other people groups, and they go, hey, we, we need to be more like them. They are, they've got it down, and it's probably because they have a king. They desire to look like these other nations, and so they felt this pressure to be a king, to, be, to have a monarchy system. And so Samuel begins to hunt 
for Israel's next king, even though God was like, look, you guys don't need a king. You don't need a king. And eventually God would say, okay, you want it? I'm going to give it to you. And so Samuel finds this guy named Saul from the tribe or the clan kind of area of Benjamin. And Saul comes in the picture, and Saul is an immediate success. He kind of serves as interim king, and he takes over, and they begin to fight and squabble with some other countries, and they have some immediate success. Unfortunately for Saul and for the Israelites, they saw this success more as a win because of Saul's leadership as opposed to God. They saw Saul as the victor and not the Lord. So they begin to put a lot of trust, a lot of hope into this man. And God said, eventually this would happen. This is why I didn't want to give you a king, because you would take your eyes off of me and you would put your eyes on this man. And so Saul steps in and he's taking lands and he's growing their economy. They're still struggling by all means, but he's winning a little bit, small battles. And that's where we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 2. It says, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. Now, they're going to go fight some more battles. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah and of, of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Now, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Now, Jonathan is Saul's son. It's interesting that the author doesn't tell us who Jonathan is at this moment. He will later tell us. But Jonathan is Saul's son. So Jonathan wins a battle. And the Philistines, the kind of the large people group, the strong economic leaders in this part of the world, they, they hear, hey, you just beat us. And Saul blew a trumpet, as Saul does, throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. We're big and bad. And all Israel heard it said, that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Notice it said Saul had defeated the garrison. That's interesting. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Now Jonathan defeats these, these guys. And the, it's almost kind of like the shot heard around the world. Everyone knows what's happening. And the Philistines are not happy about it. So Saul begins to call out more soldiers to continue this battle, to continue their success, to grow their empire. He is looking to gain momentum. Continue on in verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. So the Philistines, are they're getting ready. And they're not getting ready with just a couple thousand. It says 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth -Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews even crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal. And the people followed him trembling. The Philistines weren't playing around. Their numbers were like that of the sand. The, the enemy of Saul grew massively overnight. 
And Saul was scared. See, Saul and Samuel actually had a plan to kind of meet up. They, they, they had a, a plan to, hey, let's meet at this location at this time so that we can kind of get our troops back together so we can understand what's going on and, and recalculate of sorts. But if you continue on in the text, Samuel doesn't show up when he's supposed to. And Saul starts losing hope. He starts losing sight of the victory and he begins to look at all of the nose and the closed doors and the fear around him. So Saul begins to make offerings. Now, he breaks the law in doing this because he has a priest in his camp. But yet, instead of waiting on the priest to go through the processes that were set forth by God for these people, Saul goes, no, 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 no. we're going to make this offering now. We're going we're gonna to do this now. I don't, I don't have time to wait. I'm freaking out. We've got to get something going our way. So he takes matters into his own hands. And he's no longer trusting in God. Matter of fact, he, he's no longer even looking at God, thinking about God. He's just saying, look, I, I've got the skills to make this work and make this happen. And so I'm going to trust my own abilities over God's. Have you ever done that? You ever been stood up in a situation and you look around you and it would appear that everything is crumbling, everything is failing, and instead of doing what you know in your heart of hearts to do, to look towards God, to pray, to, to meditate, to wait, to hear from the one who you would say is sovereign and in control and is good and knows all things, no, no, you hurry up and you try to fix things. I do it. I'm with you. We, we, we have a tendency to, when, when the Samuel of our life doesn't show up, we have a tendency to go, okay, let's go ahead and fix this. We ain't worried about Samuel. We don't need Samuel. We can just do this without him. It's okay. And so Saul does that. But see, eventually Samuel is going to show up. And he shows up right at that time. When Saul feels like he's been stood up and he's sitting on the couch and he's eating that half a gallon of ice cream and he's feeling sorry for himself and Samuel walks in the room like, bro, what are you doing? And Saul's like, man, you, you, you didn't show up. The world was coming in. I had to make something happen. I tried to wait, but and Samuel's like, man, I told you what to do. And then not only did I tell you what to do, God told you. You had a blessing from God and he told you what to do. To not make those burnt offerings. And because you've done that now, Saul, Samuel tells Saul, you've lost God's blessing. Matter of fact, he's going to remove his anointing from you, and he's going to put it on somebody else. That somebody else will eventually be David. And here is Saul. He hears this news, and as you can imagine, at any camp in wartime, News like that will spread like wildfire. Saul goes against the word of God. God essentially turns his back on Saul. And because of this moment, all of the troops find out and they flee. They run. The two, three thousand he thought he may have had, even though they were dispersed, reduces now to a number of six hundred. And here is Saul with six hundred men fighting an army that, as Scripture says, would almost outnumber 
the sand. And Saul is freaking out, and it gets worse. See, because of the economic situation, the Philistines owned most businesses. They ran them. They were the supplier for everyone. And so the blacksmiths no longer had materials to make weapons. And so here are 600 men in an army ready to go to battle, and there's only two people with weapons. Saul and Jonathan. 600 with two weapons, and you're standing against a massive sea of people, an army of people. It looks like a good time to recalculate if I'm Saul, if I'm Jonathan. So what do they do? Well, there's two things that they do. There's a good thing and there's a bad thing. Let's continue. 1 Samuel 14, verse 1. Now one day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. Meaning the other side, there was this pathway. Almost if you've seen the movie or heard the story of kind of the 300, there was great lands on both sides, but then they had these kind of mounds and, and I guess I would call them uh, very rocky hills. And in the middle of those two hills, you had a path, a, a very clear path. But the Philistines had this path guarded pretty well. Like, you're not going through there. So Jonathan looks at his armor bearer and says, like, we're going we're gonna to climb up over this, this rocky mountain. It's a very steep terrain. It's a very dangerous terrain. It's not a safe thing to do. It's not a smart thing to do, let alone carrying your weapons and all the other things that you have to do. It's a dangerous plan in and of itself to go and spy on the Philistines. So let's go over there. But, but Jonathan doesn't tell Saul. It says, but he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. Now, there's two ways to handle failure, like I said. There's the good way. There's the bad way. We'll see the, first ba the bad way first. See, what Saul does is he finds comfort in fear. Saul finds comfort in fear. He, he runs. And this is something that I believe that millennials and Gen Z really need to hear. And before you think I'm going to beat up on millennials and Gen Z, I, I are one, as they say. I, I technically fall right into like the very first year of millennials. But what gener generational researchers have found is that millennials and Gen Z people get stuck because of a, a failure, a fear of failure. Like instead of progressing forward, they're so afraid of failure that fear locks them down. And this is in many ways what Saul is doing. And what the researchers, researchers would go to find out is that there's a bunch of different reasons why these generations do this. But one of the main ones is because of technology. And here's what I mean. Like, like I said, I was kind of on the beginning cusp of that millennials, but I can remember being in middle school PE, which is probably the most awkward time in life, right? Like it is, especially for a boy. And men, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. It's, you got to go to the dressing rooms and change. Weird. Like it's just 
awkward. And then you go out, and none of us are good at sports at that point, but there's a few who stand out, and there's a few who stand out in the bad way, right? And so you go out in PE, and you're shooting some hoops, you're playing gotcha or whatever other game in basketball or dodgeball, and you're the kid getting hit upside the head, and you got that, like, nice little grid pattern on the side of your face. Back when we played, and I sound like, an, you know, kind of an older man, but back in my day, right, you'd get hit with that ball on the side of the face, and the only people that knew were the ones in that class. But now, if you get hit in the side of the face with the ball, there was somebody in the stand Snapchatting you, you know, taking a picture of that, putting it on YouTube, and all of a sudden, you are now the worst athletic person in your entire school. So what's once happened in front of 20 people possibly, or maybe even 50, now happens in front of a few hundred, if not more. If it's really dumb, it might go viral. That's a weighty thing. Like that is a heavy thing to go, if I mess up, the whole world could know that I'm an idiot. I mean, and and sometimes as humorous as that can feel, it's also really scary. it's, It's a real thing that our children are growing up in, that There is no secret. There's no hiding place. Technology exposes them in every way that you and I may not have found exposure. And this is the same type of weight that Saul would be feeling. He would find comfort in that fear. And what he would do is he would just lock down. And he would go hide in that cave. Some would say even kind of underneath a tree balled up. And this is not the way to move forward in life. This is not what God would have for you and I, to find comfort in fear and to go, okay, at least I recognize this. At least I understand this. This is not the way that God would have us live our lives. I follow a a leadership coach, and one of my favorite sayings from him, a guy named Todd Bolslinger talking about progressing your organization or your leadership, and he goes, you've always got to be moving forward, and he says this, we can fail, but you can't suck. You can fail in trying things, but you can't suck, and what he means by that is if all you ever do is kind of reach for low-hanging fruit, you're never going to succeed well, but if you reach well, you reach for that, that cookie jar on the top of the mantle and you put everything that you have into it, you may fail. But if you do things the right way, you're probably not going to suck. You're probably going to be good. And I know that might be like harsh language to some of you, and I'm sorry. But like that's a really good thing. Like We should progress our lives and move forward. We should try hard things. And remember that this momentary failure may push you to a life of long-lasting success. Trust the process and move forward. My senior year uh, on, my, on my football team in high school, we had a saying. It was Fido. Forget it and drive on. Because in our sport, on the football team, really every play somebody messed up. There are very few perfect plays in football. There are very few perfect plays in sports. But in football, there's 11 guys trying to do one thing. And even that run that breaks for 60, 70, 80 yards, the wide receiver on the backside could have been doing literally nothing. But because four or five guys made the right play, and maybe you had a stud as a running back, he put his foot in the ground, took a cut, and took it 80 yards. That's a win. That's great. Woo-hoo-hoo. And that wide receiver looks and he goes, yeah, we scored a touchdown, but I 
Let's not get up. Every time, every play, there's somebody who makes a mistake. And so we just had a saying in our senior year, forget it and drive on. And I think there's a moment where I want to look at Saul and shake him and go, forget it and drive on. Like in our lives, forget it and drive on because you mess up a lot. I mess up a lot. And we can sit here and we can hide in a cave and we can think about our failures or we can acknowledge them for what they are. We say, that stinks. I don't like messing up. Nobody does. But I'm going to forget it. I'm going to press forward. So that's the bad way, right? If you didn't catch that. There's a good way to move forward. And this is what Jonathan models for us. It's to trust in God and commit your steps. Trust in God and commit your steps. What I find interesting about Jonathan and Saul is they experienced the same things. Now, the pressure would have been more intense on Saul, certainly. I'm not going to take that for granted. But Jonathan and Saul experienced the same thing. Jonathan is, you know, in, in the line to receive this monarchy. And so he feels the pressure as well. But Jonathan reacts very differently than Saul does. Like, Jonathan doesn't go and hide. Matter of fact, Jonathan puts himself out there. He goes over to the Philistine camps. And in many ways, Jonathan would understand what Solomon would later write in Proverbs 16.3. says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Jonathan is pressing forward and knowing that God will supply him with what he needs. Jonathan completely gets this. Let's pick up his part in 1 Samuel 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Man, we need a good armor bearer with us sometimes, right? Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, hey, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. Jonathan put his trust in God and was fully committed to whatever God laid before him. Part of us recalculating and understanding how to move forward is being committed to the plans that God will lay out before you. You have to be all in to Jesus before he lays those things out sometimes. You can't just begin to jog with your pole down this pole vaulting line in hopes that you have to fully commit that God will see you through this moment. And this is exactly what Jonathan does. And this is exactly what we have seen throughout this series, is that we have to be committed to the process. Churches around our world are in the middle of recalculating what normalcy looks like. And we can go about that in a kind of, 
you know, half, well, let's just kind of play it by ear and let's just move. Or we can say, you know what? We are fully committed to Christ. Now, the way in which we worship or what that looks like, the mode, the model may change. We are fully committed to moving forward. We're not going to stay stagnant. We're going to press forward. And we have been recalculating just along with those other churches. We've been kind of figuring out what next steps for us look like. And, and next Sunday, we're going to go into some details of what that may look like. And before we get there, I want to look at you, church, and I want to ask the tough question. Are you committed to the Lord and to what he is doing here at Piedmont? Are you committed to run with your pole and put it into whatever that thing is called and vault? Are you like Jonathan and you're like, hey, let's go, let's go run up these craggy rocks and wait for what God has to say for us. I'm trusting that his plans are before us. I may not be able to see them right now, but I am committing my steps to God. Because if you think about it, as a church, we have an amazing privilege. We have a huge opportunity in our city alone. Statisticians say there's about 100,000 lost people. 100,000 lost people. People who do not profess faith in Christ. I messaged some of our leaders this week, and I tried to paint them a picture, and I don't know how good it came across, <laughs> but I tried to get them to, to remember the days when we were portable, or, or to think about what happens when believers come together and leaders fully commit to what God has for us at the church. When you, if, if you can help, if you can imagine with me, maybe you got to close your eyes, whatever, and you, you drive into a church parking lot. And there's signs waving in the wind. There's maybe, maybe there's a parking team. They're greeting you with waves. And, you know, maybe cars are honking their horns, whatever. They get parked. And, 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 and ignore all the screaming babies, right? That happens. I get it. But you get parked. You get out of your car. You walk in. You, you are greeted by just wonderful people with massive smiles. And they're thankful that you're here and Sure, there's safety precautions in place because of the COVID craziness that we live in, but you walk in and there's an environment that immediately feels welcoming. And maybe it's your first time there and you're not really sure where to go, but you look and there's clear signage. And even if there wasn't, there's people showing you where to go. And you go drop your kid off and you, you walk into the sanctuary. You, maybe you get there a little early, so it's a little awkward. And you sit there for a few moments, and there's music in the background. You see some people talking, but then soon somebody walks up to you, and they introduce themselves, and they say, hey, how are you? My name is so-and-so. Thank you so much for being here. Are you from around here? This is your first time. You know, all the small talk that some people hate, but really makes you feel welcome. And you go through that talk, and you, at the end of the conversation, you really feel invited. You feel welcome. And then... The service starts, and the lights mess up. Just kidding. The service starts, and the band plays, and the sermon goes on, and everything just kind of goes smoothly, and you end the service, and they tell you, hey, you know, there's a connection desk on the lobby. We would have loved to connect with you, and you, you go for that connection card, and you leave, 
And I think here is a point that we sometimes forget. When you leave, you probably leave with a full heart. You leave with this feeling of, man, that was just good. That was just good for my soul to engage with people. And Lord willing, over the next coming weeks, you go back and you, you make some relationships. And then maybe at some point when our world goes to normal or maybe, you, you know, you're out there doing it, you go to lunch. Whew, right? You go to a restaurant with somebody. Or maybe you go eat a picnic, feel real safe, right? Go eat outside, whatever that looks like. And this is the responsibility and the privilege that we have as a church. It's not just so that somebody can come up here and sing a really cool song, but so that we can begin to preach the gospel in the parking lot, and they walk in and we say, this is who Jesus is. We present the truth that will eternally change their life. A hundred thousand people need to hear that truth. But there's something important that we need to remember about church. Tal, come help me out. So this is, hey, everybody say, hey, Tal Gregory. Can I get some enthusiasm? I mean, y'all act like y'all been asleep. Say, hey, Tal. Hey, Tal. Maybe I left off of Gregory. Maybe that's what it was. So Tal's going to, Tal's going to help me out. So what he's going to do is we're going to do a little illustration here. And what I want you to imagine in just a second is that uh, these shoes, there's some Tennis shoes on the second rack down there, Tal, if you'll pass them. No, 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 don't do that. You're, now you're ruining the secret. Gosh, just kidding. Right down there. So these, if you imagine, and Tal, you can stay right there and look pretty. Hold on just a sec. We're getting to you. If you can imagine these tennis shoes right here to be your faith, right? This is what your faith looks like. Some Walmart and one tennis shoes that they made to look like Jordan 3s, if you know what those are. So they, they make these shoes, and this is your faith. And what do we do with shoes? Tal, what do we do with shoes? Put them on. We put shoes on, right? Hopefully, you put some sort of shoe on every day, right? And you wake up in the morning, and these are fresh, brand new. Nobody's ever worn them, so no athlete's foot's coming your way, Tal. And we put our faith on. As soon as we get up in the morning, we, we put it on, and we, we lace it up. We make sure it's nice and tight. And we move forward with our life throughout our day. Maybe you get to work and you got that person at work who really just stinks. And you're like, ha, I got my shoes on. We're going to be nice to them today. Right? We're, we're, we're going to just ignore that thing they just said because that's annoying. And I want to send them a rotten gift right now. Right? A gift is a thing on your text message, you know, if you don't know what that is. But anyway, uh, so we put our faith on every day. And we, and we move forward. We walk forward in life. And what sometimes happens, you, can, you just kind of walk, pace back here, make everybody really nervous and just pace right here. So we, we walk in our faith and we, we show up in church with our faith on. If there's one time that we're going to put our shoes on during the week, it's going to be Sunday morning, right? On your couch watching online church. No, we're back in the building. So you're here, you're showing up with your faith on, you're ready to go. But what happens, Tal, you can take those off. What happens if we don't have our shoes on? What, what happens if maybe we have a bad couple of days? And, and I'm not just talking about, oh, I didn't read my Bible today. I, I'm talking about exercising your belief in Jesus. I mean, where you don't really 
engage with God in a day. I mean, whether it's through prayer, and I'm not just talking about we sit around the table with our family, like, because we, we get into these routines. My, my family's in a routine. Every meal, we pray. And if I forget, my son lets me know that I'm a terrible father, right? <laughs> Dad, we didn't pray. You're eating that fry? No. Stop, right? And then my, my daughter came in, <laughs> like, she's got her hand out, trying to hold hands. And, and, and so... I feel not only am I a terrible father, but I'm also a pastor. So there's that, right? What happens if we don't engage with the Lord? What can happen is atrophy can set in in our faith. Is it, it can get very difficult because you know what atrophy is. You can work a muscle all you want, but then when you put it down, when you stop working that muscle, the amount of time that it took to get, let's say it takes six months to get a muscle to a place, and about three months you'll lose everything you gain. And my athletic trainer said, no, Chris, that's wrong. Is that right, Jody? About same thing, right? Close, right? Garrett, appreciate it. Okay, cosine. <laughs> All right, so atrophy steps in, and our faith gets difficult sometimes, and it gets more difficult to put these shoes on. And so what sometimes happens if Satan gets involved in our life is our shoes kind of get bogged down, and, and Tal, you're a strong man. You ain't got nothing to hurt, right? So here's what I need you to do. You're going to pick these shoes up. I've done it. I'll, I'll show you. You're going to pick these shoes up like this, all right? And you're going to slowly just set them on the ground, okay? You can do it, I promise, hopefully. And so, Tal, what I need you to do is try to put your feet in those shoes. So what happens is our faith gets a little stuck it gets kind of hard to, to, to walk in the Lord. And, and this really plays itself out on Sunday mornings. Maybe you get stuck in a rut in your life. And you're not committed to Jesus every day. You're committed to him on Sundays. And that irresistible environment that we talked about, we, that, that person walked in and they're engaged with Jesus and everything's going well. It gets a little harder to do that in our life. When this is what our shoes look like, Tal, can, can you take a step? You're stuck, right? It, it's really hard. Oh, you can break it. Look, you're a strong man. That's some terrible quick creep. We didn't see that. I'm going to edit that part out of the video. But our faith gets stuck. It gets, gets binded up by this world and what Satan does to our lives. And God is just saying, hey, Tal, take your feet and move them because when you move them actually let's, let's use this Tom move your feet wiggle that thing ooh through the power of Jesus he breaks through look at there boom we're just going off the cuff look at there and he's got faith that, that wasn't even planned that was beautiful here we go and now Tao can walk in faith with Christ every day and he's moving and he's no longer stuck but if he doesn't continue to put his faith on every day what's going to happen atrophy is going to sit in. Thanks, Tal. Appreciate it. You can keep those shoes. You're welcome. And here's the, the big picture with Jonathan. Jonathan goes over and he engages with these Philistines. And he trusts God. He commits his steps after God. And the whole army right there eventually falls. God sends an earthquake and they are victorious in that battle. 
not because Jonathan was amazing or because Saul did anything because he was in the cave scared, but because God, if you put your faith in him and you commit your steps to his work, he says you are more than conquerors. When you and I walk in our faith every day and we enter into this building, we are a sound that erupts in this city. And it encourages you and others throughout the entire week. We're walking in faith and we are going to crush those Philistine armies in our life through the power and work of Jesus when we walk with him daily, not just on Sundays, not just when we volunteer, but every time we walk into this room, every time we wake in the morning, we put our faith on and we commit our steps to Jesus. We are committed. That is how you recalculate. You commit your life, your steps, your walk to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord,